Stop that silliness now, jeez. Good morning. Um, boy, it's loud. It's interesting to see you guys all hold up your Bibles, to be honest with you. Uh, at your age, I thought anybody holding up a Bible would be an absolute idiot. That's how I was raised. Some of you, some of you I know, you are raised in a Christian home and all this kind of stuff. Some of you were not. But in my home, um, to be a Christian is to be an idiot. You hate science. You hate thinking. And everybody knows that. I went to a high school of 3,000 people, just three grades, 10th, 11th, and 12th. I didn't know a single Christian. Most of my friends were Jewish. They didn't believe anything either. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll was kind of the religion of choice, the way people thought, the way people lived. And I thought that was pretty much normal. So when I heard about Christians, everything I heard was on TV or something like that. Didn't know anybody. Didn't know a single one of them. But I knew you all were all idiots. That I was sure of. Even though I didn't know anybody, I knew you were idiots. That I had down. So when I became a Christian in the middle of my senior year in high school, I thought, okay, where do I check my brain? I've become one of them, an idiot. And um, I was introduced to a thinker named Francis Schaeffer by my youth pastor, and it changed my world. And it taught me something important that the Bible actually talks a lot about. Come let us reason together, the prophet says. Take every thought captive, the apostle says. All these verses in the Bible that were the exact opposite of how I was raised to think about you as Christians, about all of you type of people, most of you anyways. So I was really shocked to find out that the Bible not only wanted me to use my mind, but it commanded me to use my mind. Because I thought all religions were the same. They all didn't believe anything. They didn't think like any. I mean, they believed stuff, but they didn't think through anything that they believed. And so uh, I've been spending most of my life as... as uh, was just told you guys were just told as a missionary talking to people trying to reason with people I and mean, one of the things i also teach at a couple different colleges in the denver area and teach world religions and teach introduction to philosophy and one of the things fascinating is there are a whole lot of religions that tell you not to think that directly tell you to turn your brain off that the key to life is found to get through suffering say in buddhism or something like that is to shut your mind off to turn it off that's the way you get through the world the world's an illusion don't get attached to it, blah, 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 all this other different stuff. But Christianity was so radically different. So when I take the Christian faith to people who do not believe that your mind is good for anything, it's always a challenge. Famous Hindu scholar, which is going to inspire not only Hinduism, it's very similar to Buddhism in some respects, and it's really true of all our New Age friends who are witches and Scientologists and all this stuff. Shankara says that the only thing your mind is good for is to teach you your mind is good for nothing. So contradiction right in there, but... That's the world that I get to play in, people who think this way. Two weeks ago, I got to go to my first psychic fair in two years. I've been going to these things for over 30 years. And there's everything from witches to Scientologists, Ekankar, all these bizarre groups, psychics, uh, a lot of people willing to take your money, I mean, tell your future, and all this kind of fun stuff. Um, here's, here's the interesting thing. So I'm talking, I went to a witch's booth. There haven't been witches there in 20 years. So I was kind of, wow, these, this is great, because I love talking to witches. I know it's strange. I know for a lot of you it's hard to believe that there are, but there are millions of people out there who call themselves witches, who believe all sorts of interesting things. So they haven't had a booth in the fair for a long time. I go up, I'm talking to this one witch, and then I talk to the guy next to him, and uh, I said, so you're a witch too, what do you believe? And he starts, he just looks around like he's worried about who's going to see him. He says, actually, I'm not a witch, I'm a vampire. I haven't had that conversation for 20 years, but I have had that conversation before. And it's the saddest thing, because the difference between him and the witches are next to nil. There's no hardly difference at all. The key idea is that I get power in life. And people have 
in a very broken, fallen world, you know, your parents throw you away or you're abused or as you're bullied at school or a zillion other situations where you feel like you don't have any power and you wish you could make things different. I grew up in a horrible home. I would have, if I was 16, if somebody told me, I'll tell you how to get what you want to get revenge against your stepdad or all the things that are going on in my life, that would have been very attractive. No more attractive than it was to Adam and Eve a long time ago when they were told they'll be as gods. Virtually everybody I talk to thinks that they're either already God and just have struggled to realize it, or they're on their way to becoming God, like the LDS or something like this. Well, this is a mess. The problem is the church looks just as bad as the world does. I've been going to these psychic fairs for 31 years, and everything I see at the psychic fair, every single tactic and technique, whether it's labyrinths or yoga or all these other things, is in the church. You can find websites on Christian witchcraft, Christian yoga, Christian aromatherapy, Christian crystals. All of it's in the church. So why is that? How does this happen? This is in my lifetime this has changed. Well, part of it was reflected. There was a recent poll a few months ago that said that less than 6% of all Christians have a Christian worldview. Less than 6% of all Christians. And I was kind of surprised that it was that high because a couple of years ago there was another poll that said less than 9% of all pastors had a Christian worldview. So the pastors don't think through the world like God calls us to, then why would I expect the people in the pews, all of us, to have a Christian worldview? So let me ask you a couple things. First, what is a Christian worldview? Second, why should I give a rip? Why should I care? Why should we bother with this this morning? So the first thing, what is a Christian worldview? I'm going to make this real simple. Simplest way I can say it is, it's the glasses you put on every day when you look at the world. Muslims have a worldview. Buddhists have a worldview. Atheists have a worldview. Everybody has a way they look at things. How do we look at life? How do we look at death? How do we look at the things in between? So some very dear friends to me lost their granddaughter a couple weeks ago right over here on I-80, I right by Donovan. And I didn't know the young lady. I'd never met her. But her grandparents I know well, and I've known them for a long time. And I know this is crushing it's absolutely crushing. She's a senior over there. At, I think it was either Donovan or Trumbull, one of the schools there. And um, How do you answer that? How do you begin to answer that? What do you tell people when something like that happens? Several of you have probably lost somebody in your life, and how do you look at that? Is it just a hopeless event? Is it just Maya, the illusion? Is it just karma? She deserved to die or something like that? That's how people look at the world. And we look at it differently depending on our religious views. At least we used to. How does a Christian look at these things? It's tough. It's tough. But the Bible tells us how we should look at it. So if you have a Bible, as most of you did, <laughs> turn to John 17. It's one of the last things Jesus talks about this whole long prayer and teaching that he's giving in John right before the crucifixion. And none of his, none of the disciples have got a clue what's going on. They're so messed up. But Jesus addresses things with them. <coughs> so in John 17, let's start right about, since I can barely read. Okay, I'm going to start with verse 15. So 17, 15. I do not ask that you, Jesus talking to the Father, okay? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So first thing we hear from Jesus, we're, we're here for as long as God keeps us here. 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. So sanctified sounds nice and holy. If you're Latin speaker, sanctify, sanctos, the word we get saint from, set them apart. What does that mean? Well, it means they're not normal. It means that they don't fit into the mundane, normal things of life. They're set apart. Cheap way of looking at this is that it's like the, the china your parents keep in a cabinet somewhere that only comes out when somebody important comes over the house. I never see china when I go to people's houses. I see like corral or paper plates, right? There are dishes that are set apart, separate for, for special occasions. So Jesus is saying something much bigger than that, but it's kind of analogous. You're in this world, but you're not the same as this world. And here's the rub, especially for your age, but I think it becomes worse when you get older, frankly, is that you desperately want to be seen as part of this world. We want to be seen as normal. We want to be seen like everybody else is seen. Uh, sometimes it's called peer pressure. You can give other names to it. But frankly, if we go to an office, someday you guys will be in the university, you'll be at the offices, you can take your positions and jobs and stuff all over the world. And guess what? You're going to want to fit in. And if the office leans this way, if everybody likes to go out and get drunk, it's, I watched this process when I used to be a cop a long time ago. I saw Christian after Christian come in, in the, to the sheriff's office, and within a few months, they're acting like all the other sh deputies were. Let's all get crashed and get drunk after, the, after our shift, stuff like this. It's a process where you want to look like everybody else. You want to fit in. Nobody wants to feel like they're on the outside. And it's the very thing Jesus is telling his disciples, Lord, put them on the outside. Make them different. And everything in you is going to say, I don't want to be different. And this is going to be a struggle for y'all. But that's the Lord's prayer, and he's the Lord, so he wins on this one. You will be different if you're one of his. Let's see what he says. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, again, I teach philosophy, and I don't know if I'm doing any classes with you guys, but there's this whole thing that so many teachers have gotten into called postmodernism. Postmodernism is that there is no such thing as truth. That's a big part of it. Unless you're a Marxist, then that's, <laughs> that's somehow true. Anyways, uh, truth is dependent on your feelings, dependent on your culture, depending on all sorts of things. But truth that stands true, that it's true that there's a you know, a wall over there with padding on and stuff like that. And that's outside of me. That was true before I walked in this room. It'll be true after I walked out. of. They don't believe that anymore. At least they claim that. No, it's subjective. So I just feel that that's a cow. Stupid, right? Welcome to the modern university in so many places. We hear all sorts of statements that sound just about like that. Two plus two all of a sudden equals seven. I'm going to talk about this at the end of this whole thing. There's a price tag if you don't have a Christian worldview. Now, the good thing is, is that the Lord's praying about you. He's praying about his disciples. If you're one of his, he's going to set you apart. That's his promise, okay? And one of the things that happens when you're not one of his is that you just get dumber and dumber. And for my family, half of them are in prison. Several of them were dead from drugs, from alcohol. And we're just all wiped out. I had two DUIs by the time I'm 17. And I wasn't considered a bad kid at all. I was just normal, at least in our family. Here's my point. When you run from God, you get stupid. You make stupid decisions. Two plus two is seven. Somehow I can do these drugs and somehow I'll be protected from the consequences of other people I already know who have died from these drugs. 
That would be stupid thinking. If you're a little kid, somehow if I keep putting my hand on the hot oven, it's going to not be hot this time. We don't think well. There's a reason the Bible calls us sheep. Some of you know this. Sheep are the dumbest animals God put on this planet, right? And everybody in the house, the Christian house, has a little sheep. Picture of Jesus holding a little sheep. And it's, oh, isn't that so cute? No, it's because they would drown in an ounce of water. They're idiots. And that's what we're called, sheep. So we don't tend to think well unless the Lord has grabbed us, unless we take him seriously. So here he's talking about his disciples. Set them apart in the truth. Uh, in philosophy, we would say it corresponds to reality. It corresponds to reality, I'm holding a Bible in my hands. It corresponds to reality that I'm speaking in Nebraska Christian. It doesn't correspond to reality that I'm, you know, floating around the moon right now, like William Shatner is supposed to be doing or something like this this week. That doesn't correspond to reality. So whenever I say something, if it corresponds to reality, it's true. If it doesn't, it's not. And that's true with every one of you, too. It's all the same, right? Jesus says, set them apart in your truth. What does he mean? Is he talking about emotions or feelings? No, he clarifies it. He says, your word is truth. So we're going to be made different if you're a follower of Jesus. And in that sense that you're being made different, there's a process to it. What is that process? Well, it's in the word of God. The Bible is what's true. And again, being raised like I was, it's just all a joke. I'd never actually read the book, but I knew it was a joke. You see the stupidity in that? <laughs> what a horrible movie that I've never seen. Uh, it just These things make no sense, but that's the screwed up brain process going on in my head at the time. So we're set apart by his truth. Here's the thing. If the pastors don't have a Christian worldview, in other words, if their worldview is not shaped by the word of God, then what happens? Well, then all of a sudden you think Christian yoga is a mix, or you think Christian witchcraft is a mix, or you think Christian crystals or aromatherapy and all these bizarre things in the New Age world. Somehow that makes sense to you now. So if you do yoga, and probably some of you do, I'm already offending you. I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> I spend my life offending people. Um, every one of those poses that you practice is a position of worship to a Hindu god. Every single one of the asanas, which is what these things are called, all the different poses, are celebrating a different Hindu god. And there's millions and millions and millions of Hindu gods. So can a Christian do that? Well, most Christians, well, I just do it for relaxation. I just do it for, you know, to keep in shape or something like this. Well, that's interesting. Are there ways we can keep in shape and relax without literally giving homage to a Hindu god? I think there are. But most Christians don't understand it, so they just practice it. That's just one example. So I saw this thing yesterday. My wife was telling me about Christian and it, Christian breathing techniques. What's that? The Hindus call it pranayama. It's this thing where you breathe in the divine force of the energy, which connects with the divine force. All this bizarre Hindu stuff. And there's Christians doing that as well. And we do mindless meditation where we try to turn this puppy off because it's, the mind is the problem, not the solution. Even though God tells us over and over again to use our mind and use it well, here I have all these other religious figures. They're religious. It must be all the same, right? It's not. So when Jesus says to set them apart in the truth, your word is true, he's commanding us to look at the world the way the Bible describes it. Well, what does the Bible describe? Simple ways. The world's created. It's real. It's also blessed by God. Something that sometimes Christians miss on, I think, is what our Jewish predecessors said. The world is made by God. It is a good world. And we should be thankful in it. Sometimes we lose that as Christians. 
it is a broken world. And many of the Jewish people I know don't believe in that anymore. I was in Israel a few years ago for a mission trip. Talked to rabbis, talked to all sorts of people. I couldn't get a single person, including this one rabbi I'm talking to, to believe that we're sinners. And it's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, dude, this is your book. <laughs> You're the ones who gave this to the world. What do you mean you don't see us as sinners? What do you call it when somebody stabs somebody? There have been several people killed in the old market just a few months before we got there. Stabbed by Muslims, doing what Muslims do. What do you call it when people do stuff like that? Give it any synonym for sin you want. Evil, messed up, say, you can say whatever you want. I couldn't get a single Jewish person, including the rabbis, to believe that. So they gave us this idea. So they're, they're messed up in a different direction now. So your word is true. So it tells me God created the world. It tells me the world is very good. It also tells me that it's broken, that we rebelled against God in the garden. And we see the price tag all over the place. We see the sex slave trade all over the world. We see murders all over the world. We see people being molested and hurt as children all over the world. You want to pretend that none of that's real? Well, here's the Hindu world view. It's all Maya. It's illusion. Buddhists believe this the same. It's all Maya. None of this is real. And we don't even exist. Does that help you when somebody you know dies? Just focus on the fact that it doesn't matter. That's what they tell you. What does God's word tell us about something like this? There is a time for grief. Death is a real thing. It's a horrible thing. Now, I may not like that, and I don't. But it's better than telling me that it's not real and it didn't happen. That literally makes no sense. And there's no way I'm going to get my mind around it to shut this mind off long enough to make that work. So again, when the Bible says your word is truth, I have to look into the Bible. I have to see what it says about all these different things. And it says a lot about these things. It says a whole lot. It says so much you can spend your entire life studying it, and you'll still not get it all. But at least you'll have parameters. What does a Christian worldview look like as opposed to an atheist? Sometimes people borrow across worldviews. So for example... I run into atheist people. It's like, well, you know, we should, we should be taking care of the poor. Well, that's a great thing. Okay, great. As an atheist, how do you make that work? Based on Charles Darwin and Karl Marx and all these other famous atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche, all these famous atheists in the 19th century, uh, where does the jungle tell you to take care of the poor? Does the jungle teach you to love your neighbor? No, the jungle teaches you to eat your neighbor, right? especially if they're old and slow. So when an atheist tells me they should take care of the poor, I'm like, that's awesome. How do you get there? What drives that? By comparison, the, does the Word of God tell me to take care of the poor? Yeah, it does, over and over again, repeatedly. tells me to take care of the widow, the orphan, the, and the stranger in your midst, the most vulnerable people of all. The Word of God commands me to think that way. Now, if you're just built in selfish like we all tend to be, why would you take care of something that's not yours? Yet the Word of God commands me to do that. Why would I do something as crazy as to love my enemies? Where's the jungle teach you to do that? Hinduism says my, my enemy doesn't exist. Buddhism says they don't exist. The Bible tells me they exist, and I know they exist. So when I'm commanded to love somebody that is extremely unlovable, 
Now I'm in the process of letting the Word of God shape my mind, shape the way I think, give me a Christian worldview. I don't want to love them, I know. But the Lord tells me to love them. The Lord, Word of God tells me to honor my parents. It does not tell you to honor your honorable parents. Some of you are like me. You had parents that were extremely not honorable. Bad people doing bad things. But the Word of God just tells me, don't, don't, <laughs> don't focus on how bad they are. Focus on who they are. They are my parents. And the commandment is to honor my parents. So my worldview is being shaped by something not of my own. I didn't invent, I'm going to take care of the people who are nice to me. That's the way my head thinks. And the Lord says, no, I want you to honor these people. My dad's been a nightmare my whole life. Wasn't abusive. He just abandoned us and has just seen us as useless and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he's just uh, not a nice man. He's 91 years old. He's sitting around waiting to die. He's been that way, and he's been in a chair for most of the last 20 years and just having a horrible life, and he's always angry and never any fun to talk to. So about maybe 15 years ago, I'm in my 50s. I've pretty much grown up through life. I'm a man. I don't need anybody chewing me out. So my old man, I get on the phone with him, and he's mad at my little brother, so he decides to chew me out, which is the way my dad works. And he starts screaming and cussing me out on the phone. And I'm like, I am 53 years old. Why do I want to listen to this? And every impulse in me was just to hang up the phone <laughs> and to cut this nonsense off. And then I remember, because the Lord gave me this thought that is in his word forever, honor your father and mother. So I'm not going to return what he's given to me, all this garbage he's throwing at me. And I sat there. And I didn't say a word for several minutes while he's cussing me out. And every bit of me, like I said, in my flesh, in my normal sense, in my normal human mind is to say, I've had enough of this. But no, the scriptures command me to honor my dad, even when he's not acting honorable. So after about seven, eight minutes of this, he finally stops. It's real quiet. I'm not responding to him. He stops, and after about a minute or so of that, he goes, I went too far, didn't I? Wow, a moment of consciousness for my dad. And I said, yeah, Dad, you did, but I forgive you. I love you. Did I want to put up with that? No. Any more than I want to pray for my enemies. But the Lord commands me to think about things differently than I thought before I was a Christian. That's what a Christian worldview is. He's going to shape the way you think, not just about some things, but about everything. And half the time you're going to be fighting him. You won't find it easy. Sometimes it's easy. When I first became a Christian, because I was into drugs and all this other fun stuff, and my whole family is, we all stole from everybody. Everybody stole from everybody else. You had to be, no, you don't trust anybody. My brother stole my drum set when I was on a, a quick trip, sold it for drugs. This is just what we do, because we're idiots at this point. So I become a Christian in the middle of my senior year, like I told you, actually over Christmas break. And I'm reading through the Bible. I'm just, this is all new. I've never read this stuff before. I'm just reading and reading and reading. And I get to this place in Ephesians. All right? So now I've read through most of the Bible. I get to the Ephesians, and it says, Let him who steals steal no longer, but instead work for his bread. And I know it's going to sound stupid to most of you because you raised in a nice little Christian home, but I wasn't. I'm like, whoa. One of those aha moments, whatever you want to call it. We're not supposed to steal. Oh, crud. Who knew? And you're all thinking again, moron, right? I'm telling you, this was radical stuff for me. I did not know that there was a God who cared about stuff like stealing. 
Because everybody I know stole from everybody. That's how you get high. You get somebody else's money. So all of a sudden, my stupid <laughs> brain is being instructed, don't do that. Instead, work for your bread. Christian worldview. I'm being shaped. So do we all get what the Christian worldview kind of is now, that God's going to shape the way you look at everything in life? The second reason is why should you care, all right? Well, first off is that God commands us to care about this sort of thing. Take every thought captive, the Lord says. There's a lot of worldviews out there. I just donated my library about six months ago. It was like ripping my arm off. I had about close to 10,000 volumes in my garage, and it was tough to give it up. But I had about every view you can think of, every philosophy, every religion, from Satanism to a variety of LDS to a whole variety of all sorts of other religions. So I've been exposed to this stuff for a long, long time, been reading it, been wrestling with it, and talking to people who believe this stuff, trying to share the gospel with them. And in the middle of all that process is this thing that's going on in my head, is saying that these people are no different than I was. They didn't understand. They didn't know. So when I talk to them about, with an atheist, there is a God. When I talk to a Mormon, no, there's only one God, and you're not one of them. Uh, or a zillion other things like this, all right, it's informed by the fact that I've had to use my mind. And you are going to run, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you're going to be set apart, like, the, like Jesus says, you're going to run into most of the people in your life, assuming you get out of some tiny little bubble in central Nebraska. You're going to run into all sorts of people who do not share your worldview, who do not think like you do. <coughs> They're going to think very differently than you do. They're going to think there's something wrong with you like I did. I get it. I don't, I'm not mad at people like that. I have compassion on people like that because I was an idiot just like them. I get it. I get it completely. But the Lord tells me to take every thought captive, for example. Well, what does that mean? I run into a bad idea, and I'm commanded to think about it differently, to take it, to give it a better answer or something like this. So I'm, as I mentioned, some of our dear friends lost their granddaughter not too far from here just a few weeks ago. And I can rail against the unfairness of life and the injustice. And if there's a God out there, how can you let this happen? The problem of suffering and evil, this is called. A lot of atheists. Darwin, for example, his wife said it was never the same after his daughter died. She was like 20. Uh, Nietzsche's dad was died, very famous atheist, when he was five. He was a pastor. Nietzsche's never the same. The problem of evil is real. That's a serious question. And if you haven't dealt with it yet, it's just because you're not old enough. You will. Somebody in your life is going to die. Somebody in your life is going to be horribly sick. And you're going to struggle like all human beings have. And again, how do we answer that? Well, the Hindus and Buddhists say the answer is it's karma or the world's an illusion. That doesn't help. The Muslim says, you know, inshallah, this is the will of Allah. We're all just meat puppets and Allah does what, with us what he wants. The Bible says this is real and it hurts because, one, the world is real, unlike the Hindu and Buddhist worldview. It hurts. Because the brokenness of this world, we face it all the time. And this is one of those examples. I just found out last night, and I, because I wasn't able to come out last year, um, Coach Schreiber, who was part of your school here forever, and I met in 1985, a long time ago, that he had died of COVID. Oh, no. This is a friend. I didn't get to talk to him that much, but this was still a friend to me. And that bothers me. Loss bothers me. Things that hurt bother me. The Christian worldview does not say this is not real. Pretend. Turn your mind off. 
The Christian worldview tells us that the Lord is here to comfort us in the middle of our suffering. It tells us that over and over again. You know, when Jesus is talking about all these guys, what does he say at the end of this? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, set myself apart, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Every single person that Jesus is talking to when he's addressing this with his disciples is going to be dead in 30 years. Every single one of them. Some of them are going to be dead much sooner than others. Is Jesus saying that we follow Jesus and the Christian worldview is that everything will be life and we'll all be rainbows and unicorns and everything will be fine? No. Nothing like that at all. The Christian worldview may call you to all sorts of level of commitment. It's, it's, it's unlike the largest pastor in the world, Joel Osteen. Uh, the Christian worldview is not about getting your hair straight, getting rich, and feeling good about things. It's just not. It's not about everything going well for you, and despite what these guys say on TV all the time. The Christian worldview may walk you into a place where your people hate your guts and they kill you. And that happens. It's happened in the history of the church. So if you're thinking it's the, the Christian worldview, somebody told me about how great life with Christ would be and everything will go great. They lied. That's not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is that Jesus will hold you and be with you wherever you go. And if today's your last day, the Lord will be with you and you'll be in heaven with him. And if your day is to last longer than that, years from now or whatever, Lord willing, then the Lord will be with you in that too. Whatever you, that's what God tells us. Now, do we take it seriously is the point. And I'm going to argue since we've abandoned the Christian worldview and less than 6% of us have one, that no. So I want you to turn to another passage real quick. And this is the end of the book of Jonah. So turn to chapter 4 in Jonah. You guys all know this story. Well, I hope you do. It's all about the whale, right? It's actually, the whale's not the biggest miracle in the story. Um, the biggest miracle in the story is that God calls Jonah, this is about eight centuries before Jesus, God calls Jonah to talk to these Ninevites. And if you watched Veggie Tales, you got the stupid version of this, okay? People slapping each other with fish. No, no, no. And I thought, what a disappointing way to describe Nineveh. This is one of the most evil places in the history of this world. The Assyrian people as a whole, and Nineveh was the capital of that area, are some of the cruelest people that ever lived. I, I, I've done a lot of history as well as philosophy, and one of the things that's fascinating in a horrible way is that you have cultures like the Ninevites and maybe the Apache who developed incredibly cruel ways to kill people, to make them suffer. For example, the Ninevites invented the crucifixion form of killing people. How do we kill people slowly? Forget every movie you've ever seen when it shows Jesus and other people being crucified. When it looks like they're all basically dead, none of that happens. They're on a little platform, and they're asphyxiating. It takes days to die in most cases, and it's horrible. Your joints fall out, and then invites are like, cool, look at that. Look at this wonderful, cool thing we invented. Interesting. Eight centuries before Jesus, the Ninevites invent the thing that the Romans are going to use on Jesus, right? That's described two centuries before that in the Psalms. The Psalms tell us what's going to happen to the Messiah. Two centuries before there was crucifixion. Wow, maybe the Bible knows something about these kind of things. Anyways, that's one thing they did. They also invented, for example, this gigantic metal horse that was so sharp, you'd go up several, several stories, you had to climb a huge ladder, and they would push you down this thing and it would slice you in half. Now for that person, death is quick, okay? 
but all the other people who are about to be executed are going up one by one, and they're watching what happens to people. The torture was in your head. That's the Ninevites. These are not nice people. These are horrible people. They got off on making people suffer. They enjoyed it. All right? So Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites was well-earned. It wasn't like, oh, they're just nice people and I hate their guts. No, they were really as nasty as you get. Extremely bad, okay? All right, so having said that, if you know the story, God sends Jonah in to preach to these people. Jonah doesn't want to go. He tries to run away from God. That's a huge part of the story with the whale. Then Jonah finally comes back. God keeps pushing him back to Nineveh. He preaches to them to repent, and they do. That's, to me, the biggest miracle. Here's this entire most evil city on the planet, practically. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people all repent and turn away from their sin. That's an amazing miracle in itself. I'm, in a, I'm a missionary. I like to see people turn to Jesus. This is awesome. Here's got this whole city of really evil people. They all turn to Jesus. And Jonah is depressed. He's mad. All right? He's mad. And he basically says, I knew you were going to do this, God. I just knew it. I knew you were going to make these people repent. Jonah wants them dead. He wants them to suffer. He wants them to get their karma. He wants them to pay for what they've done. And God forgives them. And Jonah's mad at God. So that's the end of the story here, right? That's the basics of the story. So we get to the very end of the chapter. There's this whole weird thing with the plant. We won't go into that. But at the end, God is kind of, Jonah, think about this. Jonah, think better than you've thought before. And he says this. You pitied the plant which you did not labor, and you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night, perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, to which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You get the idea here? What is God saying? These people are so clueless. Their brains are so wired badly that they don't know their right hand from the left. In other words, it's just a metaphor for saying they're morons. They've run from God better than anybody else has. Look at them. They love killing people. That's about as far from God as you can get. They love it, and God forgives them. And then he tells Jonah, how can you not have compassion on people whose thinking is 2 plus 2 equals 7? Night is day. Isaiah says it this way. They put sweet for sour and sour for sweet. Something's going on here. You run from God, and now your brain doesn't work anymore. And I'm like, I get that. <laughs> I understand that part. That was me. It's like I keep thinking that if I go out and get high, go out and get drunk, somehow it'll be better the next day. Life will be better with my stepdad. All right? Never worked. But I kept trying it. What's the definition of insanity, they say? To try to do the same thing over and over again and it never works? I got it. Brain didn't work. And one of the cool things, there's a story about one of the great heroes of the church as far as a thinker and writer, a guy named Augustine about 1,600 years ago, and he was a party idiot, just like me. He'd had a kid out of wedlock. That was a mess. His family was a mess. His mom's a Christian. She's always praying for him, and Augustine's like, I'd rather party. He gets into all this bizarre New Age stuff. We'd call it New Age today or New Spirituality, whatever, but it was Manichaeism. It's just another form of the same old stupid ideas. Anyways, that's Augustine, and he hears a sermon one day. He's walking through a park, and there's some preacher out there, and he hears this sermon, and God grabs him. And turns him inside out. This is where it comes down to being a Christian worldview. He said the most interesting thing. He says, I believe 
that I might understand, that I might think. In other words, when he came to faith in Jesus, his brain started working. Instead of 2 plus 2 equals 7, all of a sudden 2 plus 2 equals 4. Wow. Wow, the world works better this way. I don't make all the stupid decisions I made before. So I, when I first read about Augustine, I'm like, guy, that's a little bit of me too. I flunked almost every class I had in high school. And I'm this far from my PhD. Straight A's in grad school. I flunked algebra. Can anybody relate? I flunked geometry. I was a, only the kindness of my teacher kept me from flunking chemistry. I got a D minus, and it should have been an F. My brain didn't work properly. Why study when you can go out and party instead? And somehow I thought magically that's going to make life better. I wasn't thinking well. I was thinking poorly, to be kind. And yet God showed compassion upon me, which is what he offers here and what he's telling Jonah. Shouldn't God show compassion on people who can't think worth a darn, can't tell their right from their left? This is the price tag. When you don't have a Christian world view that shapes you and makes you think, all of a sudden hurting people is cool. I mean, yeah, I'm down with that. All of a sudden thinking that if I, you know, keep sending people money, somehow God's going to make me rich. It's, it's normal. It's okay. All of a sudden, I think that somehow if I just turn my brain off, the world will go away and the problems of life will go away. No, no, and no. None of this works. When I think like God, does it make everything better? Not necessarily. Didn't make my stepdad better. Didn't make my mom better. Didn't make my dad better, any of these kind of things. But how I thought about them how I started interacting with them, that all changed. And that got much better. It took, oh, I don't know, 20 years before my mom started looking at me and saying, oh, <laughs> maybe you're not such a bad guy. I'll never forget. The first year after I was a Christian, I went home. To, I was in Bible college in Denver, which is now Colorado Christian University. I wasn't in Bible college to go into ministry. God's not that stupid as far as I thought. Um, God would not take, he'll take the nice kids, like some of you that you know never did all the bad things that I did. That makes sense. And at least that's the way I thought back at the time. I go to Bible college because I don't know anything. I want to learn. I want to catch up. On all, I didn't go to Sunday school. I wanted to hear all these things. So I'll never forget New Year's Eve. I'm all by myself because everybody in the family has gone out. And uh, my mom's going out the door, and she's mocking the snot out of me. She says, oh, you're not going out. Oh, I, yeah, I forgot. Christians don't believe in having fun. And then she goes out and goes getting smashed, goes and gets drunk. And so a little bit later when I was talking to her, Mom, would it actually be better? Is it work for you? Would you rather have me in jail again? Do you want me to be arrested again? Is that what you think is fun? Now, you want to hear a real stupid version of the story? So I'm a brand-new Christian. To me, fun is still synonymous with getting high. I haven't learned anything about that yet. I'm not doing it, which is different. I'm changed, but and that's, the Lord's grabbed me, and things are already starting to happen. So I go to this youth group party at the church I just started going to in Dallas. And they're doing stupid youth group things. So some of you have done this stupid game because it's just been in youth ministry stuff forever. So they lay plastic all over the floor at the house I'm at, and they asked me to volunteer and one other person. So being the idiot, I said, okay, I'll do this. And I lie down, and they put plastic up to here, lay it over me, and then they take this donut, and they dip it in chocolate syrup. Anybody done this before? And they start swinging it. And I'm supposed to try to eat the donut 
while it's swinging over my face with chocolate syrup all over it. This is dumb, right? I'm sitting there thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that, I'm trying to, I'm trying to buy this dumb donut, <laughs> and I start cracking up. I'm just laughing my fool head off. I am just giggling. I can't stop. And I thought, this is, again, this, for you guys, this is so normal, and for me, it was so strange. I'm having fun, and I'm not drunk. I'm giggling my head off having fun at this stupid little game, and I'm not drunk, and I'm not high. My world has changed. My Christian worldview is being shaped, and God was teaching me all sorts of new things, which he will do for you as well. Why? Because it's his promise. He prays to the Father, set them apart, and what Jesus prays for, he gets. You're going to be, if you're one of his, you're going to be set apart. If you're not, first I would invite you to, to be one of his, but secondly, you're going to start getting dumber and dumber. You're going to make more and more mistakes. Somehow on my third marriage, it'll be better, my fourth. My little sister was married seven times, and that was like 40 years ago before she finally gave up. She went into federal penitentiary for drugs and all this kind of stuff. God commands us to think about this and think about it well. To not be like Nineveh, to not be so clueless that we haven't got any sense of what life is. But he commands us. He commands us to love him. He commands us to love each other. They're kind of tied together. Maybe you've heard of them, the first and second great commandments. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? There's that whole Good Samaritan story. My neighbor's not necessarily the person I like. The, my neighbor's not necessarily the person I even want to get close enough to like. My neighbor may be the person who hates me with every ounce of their being. They may be a Satanist. They may be a witch. They may be a vampire. I like I said, I haven't had that conversation in a long time, but there are people out there. You know what's sad about I'll just tell you this real quick. What he told me two weeks ago, I asked him, are you meeting with a group of people? Are there more you here in the Denver area? Denver's a pretty big city, several million, right? And he goes, no, actually, I think I'm the only one. And part of my mind is going, how sad this is. You've got these spiritual beliefs that are supposed to be so cool and make you powerful, and you're all by yourself. You have to tag along with a bunch of witches to feel like you're part of something. How sad is that? What would the Lord say? Shall I not have compassion on a person who thinks this is the key to life? So when God calls us to have a Christian worldview and to think this way and separate us, he also calls us to take that Christian worldview into the world. What does Matthew 28 tell us? Go into all the world, into all the nations, teaching them all things I have commanded you. What is our call? It's to take the Christian worldview and share it with others. Hey, you don't have to think two plus two is seven. You don't have to think that up is down and down is up. You don't have to think that black is white and white is black. You can think and your mind will work when you follow Jesus. So what's my last word for you guys this morning? Follow Jesus. Take seriously his worldview, the way he presents his truth in God's word. And if you don't know much about it, okay, there's a solution, just like I had. I didn't know anything. Start. Start today. Take his word seriously. It's not just classwork for the school here. It's something that will shape your life. It will change your life. The Lord will guide you in all of that, and he'll be with you through every bit of this. Let's pray. Father, you are truly Lord of all things. You have so much to share with us and so much we have to learn. Father, I pray for every student in here and all the faculty and staff and everybody else. Father, grab us. Help us to think the way you think. Help us to think 
the way the scriptures command us to think. Give us a heart and a compassion for people who don't think that way. Father, again, if there's people here who don't think that way because they don't really know you, grab their heart, Father, like you did with mine. Lord, thanks again for mercy and grace and all these good things you give us. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Uh, 